children. Um, you heard, where are all the children? Okay, there we go. I want to see all the eyes. Um, you uh, have heard probably at some point, since you've been in this church for a while, you, all of you have for a while, you have probably heard the word used uh, by myself or Mr. Craig or someone else, uh, reformed. Maybe you've heard us described or describe ourselves as reformed Christians. Um, if you haven't heard that term, we sometimes do refer to us, Presbyterians do, uh, as reformed Christians. Now, why is that? Well, there, there's quite a bit of background there, but, but essentially, what we are a part of a movement that came out of the medieval church hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, an effort to reform uh, the medieval church, which was in really bad shape. Um, and what it means to reform something, children, is to change it for the better. To change it for the better. The old, the uh, back in the uh, medieval church, uh, there was much corruption, many many false doctrines that were being taught, many true doctrines that were not being taught, um, and the church was just in terrible shape. And uh, a thing called the Reformation occurred. Martin Luther, some of you have heard Martin Luther's name, and he was instrumental in uh, the Reformation of of the of the visible church, we're going to call it, the church that was uh, uh, in Europe at the time. And another man who was very instrumental in bringing about that Reformation was a man named John Calvin, whom uh, many of us admire, uh, although Calvin made some mistakes, um, as we all do, including myself. But uh, but uh, what Calvin's uh, Calvin's uh, work and the the churches that came out of what Calvin did are often called reformed churches, uh, who wanted change in the church and brought it about, uh, you know, where they wherever they planted churches. And so we are a part of that reformed movement. Now, why is Pastor Mark talking about all this church history stuff and this word reformed? Well, because <clears throat> this chapter here, this passage that I just read to you a few moments ago in Second uh, Chronicles, there's a king involved, King Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, excuse me. Uh, he was a king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom uh, of the two. There were two kingdoms after Israel split into two kingdoms uh, after David and Solomon were uh, over the United Kingdom. It split into two kingdoms: the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And King Jehoshaphat of Judah, in this passage, is trying to reform the spiritual condition of his nation. He's trying to change it for the better. And one of the principal things that he does to bring about this reformation or help to uh, to spur on this reformation, this spiritual uh, uh, improvement of his subjects, is he institutes judicial reform. Judicial just means uh, judges. He puts judges in place uh, who are godly men to judge uh, between people and to also to enforce God's law, 
which was contained in the first five books, principally in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is the Matthew, excuse me, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, sometimes called the Torah, or the five books of Moses, or the Pentateuch, all mean the same thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about reform today, children, what, and specifically Jehoshaphat's reforms in the judicial system. So I wanted to, uh, I gave you all that so you'll kind of understand when I use the word reforming what you're, what I'm getting at. So, look, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> little background here, uh, very little, but just to remind you uh, of what we're covering, Chronicles covers the history of the kings of Judah after uh, Solomon's day, Second Chronicles does, and uh and these are all Davidic kings. Judah had the line of David. The uh, Davidic dynasty ran through Judah, not through uh, the northern kingdoms, kings of Israel. They were all apostates uh, and uh, and usurpers, if you will, of of the throne. Uh, but the southern kings were uh, were genuine descendants and anointed by God as descendants of David. And Jehoshaphat was one of those kings. Anyway, we've been looking at Jehoshaphat's reign. We started in chapter 17 looking at his reign. And chapter 17, verse 3, all the way through chapter 19, verse 3, recount events that took place during the earlier years of King Jehoshaphat's reign over Judah. So, 17... 3 to 19.3, earlier portion of his reign. Well, now, in 19.4, where we're starting today, all the way through 20, verse 30, so the next chapter, the end of it, or near the end of it, uh, near the end of it, is uh, covers the latter portion of Jehoshaphat's reign. So we're going to be looking at that now, uh, portion of that, and then uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, and maybe the week after, we'll still be in... Uh, Jehoshaphat's reign as well. So he, a, a lot of ink is devoted to Jehoshaphat by the chronicler. Uh, he was very important because, why? He was one of the more godly kings. Wasn't perfect, as we saw last week, or last time we were in this, but he was a good king. Um, in that sense, he more properly typified Jesus, the, the final king of Israel, uh, the final anointed one of God, than, say, Manasseh did who was a very wicked king, although he was converted at the end of his life. God can save even Manasses of the world. Praise the Lord. Anyway, so to the points. The two points that uh, basically outline this passage, these verses. First, we were going to see Jehoshaphat instituting reforms outside of Jerusalem, beyond uh, the vicinity of Jerusalem, if you will. Uh, and secondly, we we're going to see Jehoshaphat, um, inst- where am I here? Jehoshaphat instituting reform within the vicinity of Jerusalem. So that's the that's the outline: reform outside uh, in Greater Judah, and then reform in Jerusalem proper and the immediate uh, surroundings. Um, so first, we're going to look at Jehoshaphat's work to reform uh, uh, his country outside of Jerusalem. Specifically, we're told in verse five of our text. And you want to keep your Bibles open, of course, as we work through this. He says that these reforms took place, uh, particularly in the fortified cities of Judah. So, again, the, he rules over Judah, 
He's the Davidic king ruling over Judah. And so he is making efforts to reform all across his kingdom, throughout the kingdom. Um, and by the way, verse 4 makes the point that uh, it is part of jo- his, his efforts at reforming the judiciary in, in his kingdom are part of an effort uh, that he is making to promote spiritual renewal among his subjects. So this is part of the uh, him setting an example for and doing what he can as the king to bring about spiritual uh, uh, maturity and growth and repentance and whatever was needed spiritually amongst his amongst his uh, those under his charge or um, in his kingdom. So what are the reforms that he institutes? Well, what he's doing is he's reforms, as I've already indicated, the court system in the land. Specifically by appointing um, qualified judges to rule over uh, and, and, and render, enforce the law and render uh, verdicts uh, when there are parties that are in dispute in the kingdom. His, his efforts, Jehoshaphat's efforts, are very hands-on. It appears, as I just said a moment ago from verse 4, that um, uh, from what we read there, it appears that Jehoshaphat may have actually personally, probably did personally select uh, these judges, uh, these new, new judges in the various uh, uh, cities, the fortified cities, as he traveled around Judah, from city to city in his efforts to help spiritually revitalize uh, the nation. So I'll read that again. So verse 4, So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and then the part that uh, I'm pointing to now, and went out again, by the way, he had previously done this on an earlier occasion, went out again among the people from uh, Beersheba in the south of uh, Judah, to the hill country of Ephraim, which his father, Asa, had recently conquered from the northern kingdom. Uh, and was now, was now under the jurisdiction of the southern king. Uh, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So he's gone out, and in the process of going out, what he's doing, uh, one of the main things he's doing is he is selecting and appointing judges in, throughout the land as part of his efforts to bring about spiritual change. Um, the fortified cities that we read of in verse 5 were probably, uh, because they were fortified, the implication is they were centers of royal administration and control. Uh, they were cities that were particularly important to him, in other words, as the king. And this would explain why Jehoshaphat makes these appointments in these cities. Because they were, if you will, his special cities that he uh, enforced his, <clears throat> his rule through these cities that were scattered about the kingdom. As uh, Raymond Dillard uh, notes, he says it is it may be that Jehoshaphat was merely centralizing the control of Judah's judiciary. It is, however, also possible that Jehoshaphat was involving was involved in reforming an already existing system that had become corrupt through partiality and the taking of bribes forms of injustice addressed in his speech here, specifically in verse 7, when he says that God uh, has no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. So uh, Dillard makes the point that there's a possibility this is a new, uh, this is uh, uh, 
um, Jehoshaphat centralizing control of the judiciary, or he is maybe just uh, cleaning up the judiciary. Uh, probably both would be my guess. Uh, probably both things were involved uh, uh, in terms of his efforts. Anyway, Jehoshaphat institutes these reforms so that, for the purpose of, in other words, so that God's law, which was the law of the land in Judah, it was the final uh, law, the highest law, so that God's law could be more effectively administered and enforced. That was why this was done by him, uh, the appointing of these judges. And he, uh, as he appoints them, he gives them uh, instructions about how they are to conduct themselves. And we see this in verses 6 and 7. Look with me there. And he said to the judges, so presumably he did this on multiple occasions in multiple cities, consider what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Notice the then. Now then, now therefore, because this is the case, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord your God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. End of quote. Jehoshaphat, Again, a wise and godly king, uh, for the most part. Um, his instructions here reflect his awareness um, of the human heart's propensity to succumb to corrupting influences. Every human heart. Um, and this is a temptation to succumb to corrupting influences, to ungodly forces, as it were. It's a temptation from which even these newly elected judges, Jews, who were in covenant with Yahweh, they were not immune to such corrupting influences. Even though they were God's covenant people, um, and and by the way, were, uh, were not merely those who were... Uh, Outwardly in covenant, remember there are two ways of being in covenant. Dr. Piper covered this back in the fall. There, what we are, we can be in the covenant legally and outwardly, but not inwardly or vitally. But you're still in covenant. It's just one, one, uh, those that are inwardly, meaning believers, actual believers who are inwardly in the covenant and vitally in the covenant, meaning they have life because of their union with Christ, uh, they are in the covenant as covenant keepers, and those who are in the covenant community uh, but don't have changed hearts are only outwardly in covenant, and they are covenant breakers because they haven't submitted to Christ as their Savior and Lord. So, uh, but this temptation to, to give in to temptation um, is not something from which believers are immune, not even strong believers, which presumably uh, these judges more than likely were. Otherwise, they, they had to be mature men, uh, and the effort was to, the goal was to bring about spiritual renewal in the land. Of course, they need godly leaders to lead that charge. So these were probably strong believers, at least as far as Jehoshaphat could tell. The point I'm making here, folks, is no believer, no matter how strong, and you may be, others may describe you as a strong believer, are immune to any temptation. Let him who stands, let him who thinks he stands, excuse me, take heed, lest he fall. 
There is no temptation that given the right circumstances or the right pressures that I, I'm convinced that, that any of us can't succumb to given the right pressures um, and uh, severe enough uh, temptation. And we're foolish to think otherwise. Um, so, Jehoshaphat understood this, and uh, so he, uh, he instructs them uh, how to deal with uh, the possibility of being tempted to not do their jobs well of, of rendering decisions and enforcing laws. He essentially gives them two closely related but different commands. The first is found in verse 6, and the second is found in verse 7. So, first command that he essentially gives them is, says, you judges need to carefully consider the nature of your judicial responsibilities. You need to know what is required of you, and you need to consider it carefully what is required of you. Why? Why do they need this? Because they would be working on behalf of, they would not rather be working principally on behalf of Jehoshaphat, the king, although he's the one who appoints them. Indeed, they would not even principally be working on behalf of the kingdom of Judah and its occupants or inhabitants, although uh, they were in some sense working on their behalf. But ultimately, and most importantly, and primarily, they would be working, they would be judging on behalf of Yahweh himself. They would be rendering their judgments as his representatives in the same way that elders do when they are called upon to make determinations and render verdicts in judicial cases today. I'm not a king, neither is Kirk, neither is Bill, neither is Cecil Paul. But that judicial element of, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, that, 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 Jehoshaphat is delegating to these men whom he's appointing, that judicial element does still exist, and it exists in the elder, elders, uh, the office of the uh, elder. Or some churches don't have the name elder, but the church leaders who function uh, as elders. That today's elders or church leaders are acting as representatives of Christ whenever they, and either good or bad representatives, by the way, uh, whenever they render judicial verdicts is evident from what Jesus said in Matthew 18. This should be a familiar passage to many of you, but in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, we read the following, Jesus' words. He says, if your brother sins, uh, and that um, uh, some many translations add against you, uh, if your brother sins uh, against you, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Uh, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be conser- confirmed. And here's the part where I'm getting to. And if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses that you bring, tell it to the church. And if you take other passages that deal with this issue of church discipline into account, uh, I'm convinced, and Presbyterians are convinced, that the church there is not every last person in the, in, the con- in the congregation, but those who have been designated to lead the congregation, the elders. So if you refuse to listen to them, take it to, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen even to the church, uh, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I mean, in other words, excommunicate him, put him out of the church. And then he says this, Jesus does, Truly I say to you, 
whatever you, and I'm going to read this differently than the New American Standard has it, but whatever you uh, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And I think that's a reference to the judicial verdicts, that uh, when they are properly rendered in accordance with the facts, that when, when a judicial decision is made by a, a session of elders, um, that is merely echoing a verdict that Christ has already rendered as the head of the church in heaven. And he goes on, he says, Again I say to you that if two uh, of you agree on earth, and I think the you there is uh, church leaders, if two uh, of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three, and again, I think elders is, uh, is in view there, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Jesus, by his Spirit, is there in the midst of the, of the judicial court. Uh, and it's uh, what's tra- transpiring there. So, my point is, this still applies. Um, we Presbyterians have, and the Reformed in general have always believed that this applies today, and there may be other branches of the church that agree with that as well. But this ju- judicial component is still alive and well. So these judges, Jehoshaphat's newly appointed judges, uh, needed to grasp the awesomeness of the responsibilities they were assuming. They were acting as God's agents. So sober up is kind of the point. Or be sober, I should say. Be sober. There we go. That was the first thing he said. Carefully consider the nature of your responsibilities. And secondly, Jehoshaphat charged him, he said, you also need to exercise your judicial responsibilities with the utmost integrity and care. This is in seven, the latter part of verse 7. After he... Uh, 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 no, not the not the, last, the middle of verse seven. Be very careful what you do. Be very careful what you do. So not only consider what you're doing or what your responsibilities are, but be very careful what you do. Why? Why do they need to exercise this great care in what they in their judicial uh, activity? Two reasons that are given in the text. First, it's found in uh, again in verse six. Uh, and it was the fact that God, the God on whose behalf they would be judging and on whose behalf they were acting, would be present with them and watching them when they rendered their judgments. And the second reason that they needed to exercise such care in their fulfilling of their responsibilities is found in verse 7, the latter part of verse 7, and that is because God on whose behalf, the God on whose behalf they were acting detests injustice and impartiality. And they, as his representatives, must do the same. That is, detest those things. God says they're God, um, for, and this is why they need to be careful, be very careful what you do for, here's the reason, because the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of the of a bribe. And the point is, if you're acting as they were, it would be, as his representatives, God would be having a part if they were unjust, if they were partial, if they were taking bribes. God's Honor would be sullied, as it were, 
And because, and, and by the way, these are the same reasons that today's church leaders need to exercise similar care whenever we are called upon to judge God's people. Thankfully, we haven't had to do uh, much of that judging in terms of formal judging uh, in church discipline over the years that I've been here. Uh, we have had to do some. Um, but this is a, this is a, um, a sobering reminder uh, that um, Christ is the judge, uh, and he judges through uh, those whom he has appointed over uh, local church bodies in the greater church, uh, and we need to avoid doing things that bring us under judgment. Um, and we take that seriously in this church. A lot of churches don't. We do. We don't always do it perfectly. Uh, we certainly have made mistakes. Um, and when we do, that's, uh, that's not Christ's fault, that's ours. But it is important to keep in mind. Um, and it's part of caring for God's people, calling them out when they're in obstinate, unrepentant sin. So, in light of these sobering realities, these two truths that I just mentioned, that you're acting on, they were acting on behalf of God and that God will have no part in uh, partiality and injustice, in light of these truths, it would be exceptionally important for these gentlemen uh, to have a proper reverence for God and fear of God, which is why he says in verse 7, the first part, now then, the then, because uh, God is, you're acting on God's behalf, now then fear the Lord, may, may, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. You need to fear God, gentlemen. Yeah. You need to fear God, particularly because you're in this, in this position. And of course... Need I repeat, that applies to uh, elders in this church, elders that may one day be in this church who are not currently elders, you young men or uh, middle-aged men who, uh, uh, you know, the Lord may raise up someday to be an elder. It applies to you. It will apply to you. It applies to all of us, but regardless of whether you're in office in the church or not, but it applies in a more um, intense way, I'll put it that way, to... uh, the uh, church officers. Because if we don't properly fear the Lord, if we are cavalier uh, about what we do and um, uh, let uh, partiality creep in or, uh, or uh, corruption to creep into our decision-making, in, especially in uh, hearing cases and dealing with judicial matters, then we will expose ourselves as these judges in Jehoshaphat's day would, to God's displeasure uh, by uh, such behavior, by not failing to render consistently judge, uh, just judgments. And again, those of us who are elders need to keep that in mind ourselves. Uh, God's watching. Christ is watching. Well, having reported on the judicial reform that Jehoshaphat instituted outside of Jerusalem and greater Judah, the chronicler now, in the latter portion of this text, narrows his focus to those reforms that he makes within the vicinity of the capital city itself, which is found in verses 8 through 11. Again, the reforms that he makes in Jerusalem and in the greater Jerusalem area involve, again, the appointment of Judges, specifically the appointment we are told in verse 8 of both Levites and priests to this role. And by the way, probably Levites and priests were also appointed in those fortified cities as well. 
Um, the text doesn't say that, uh, but there's a quite a good likelihood that they were also Levites and or priests um, who were appointed to those roles as well, because that was that was a fairly common practice to appoint uh, religious leaders to judicial roles in in the nation of Israel, which was also the church. Um, and by the way, these these judges here in Jerusalem, and you heard this in verse ten, were uh, appellate judges. Uh, that is, they were men who reheard cases which had been appealed to them from some lower court because of dissatisfaction on one or both of the parties to, with the, with the j- previous judgment. They were appellate uh, judges in Jerusalem. Well, as in the case of the judges that were appointed in the uh, fortified cities, Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat, I can't read my writing, charges these guys in the Jerusalem environs, uh, concerning the manner in which they were to carry out their responsibilities. This is found in verses 9 through 11. I'll read it again uh, to you briefly. Then he charged them, uh, saying, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, there it is again, faithfully and wholeheartedly. And whenever any dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities, notice they this is out in the outlying areas now, not just in Jerusalem, but uh, other parts of Judah. Uh, that's why we know it's uh, they were appellate judges, almost certainly. Uh, whenever any dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them that they may not be guilty before the Lord, and wrath may not come on you and your brethren. Thus you shall do, and you will not be guilty. And then he uh, talks about uh, these uh, individuals who would rule over certain people. And then he says at the end of verse 11, Act resolutely and the Lord will be uh, with the upright. So, he charges them. He gives them essentially, and I'll summarize here what I just read, uh, four uh, different charges or elements to this charge, if you will. Actually five, but one was just kind of housekeeping. Uh, but the, fir- the four major ones, first he says to them, you must faithfully and wholeheartedly fulfill your duties in the fear of the Lord, just like he told the other guys. you got to fear God so that you can faithfully and wholeheartedly fulfill your duties that are, that are now about to be yours. In other words, deep reverence for and fidelity to God and his law, as contained in the law of Moses, had to characterize their service. Deep reverence and fidelity had to characterize their service. Verse 9 makes that point. Uh, these, uh, And by the way, these are qualities that ought to characterize the manner in which you and I fulfill our respective callings today. We all have callings. You children have a calling. Did you know you have a calling? Your calling is, as young children is to obey your parents and to love Jesus. And to obey Jesus. That's your calling. Now, all of us have that calling. Uh, not the obey parents part after you get adult, but you know, the, the love Jesus part. Um, uh, and, uh, but we all have callings, whether we're students, uh, in school, uh, a doctor, a homemaker, mechanic, uh, handyman, whatever you are, um, or whatever you do, um, in addition to the calling to be a, a godly Christian, you have callings, one or more callings. 
Uh, and you and I, we should all fulfill our callings faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord, whatever that might be. Digging ditches or whatever. Secondly, Jehoshaphat charges these uh, Jerusalem appointees of his, judicial appointees, to faithfully warn the parties involved in the cases that are going to come before them that those parties must not defy the Lord, must not sin against the Lord, defy his will, and thereby incur his wrath, meaning God's wrath. They would see people come before them, right? Angry at each other. He did this. Well, he did this. Or he took, he stole my goat when I wasn't looking. Whatever. The judge has to sit up there and say, if you did this, you know, you better undo the damage or don't, you better not sin here in this courtroom. That kind of thing. Their job was to warn people. Uh, and this warning, this need to warn, and, and this warning to not defy God's will, uh, is relevant, obviously, for you and me today, is it not? God has expressed his will very clearly, most of the time it's clearly, in his word. Um, and we are to obey it. If we know what it says, and that's why we need to read our Bibles, we are, under, we are obliged not to go... Well, I know the Lord says this, but no. That's the way to incur fatherly displeasure if you're a Christian and uh, eternal damnation if you're not a Christian but just a poser. Is to ignore God's will. God said to Moses, remember, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The guilty there are those who flagrantly and unrepentantly violate his laws. We're all guilty of sin. But uh, he, there is grace in the, and through Christ uh, and forgiveness for the believer. But the believer is not going to be a practicing sinner. He's going to be an occasional sinner. You know what I mean by that, I hope. <clears throat> we don't sin with impunity if we're Christians. And if we do, we're not Christians. as simple as that. Thirdly, Jehoshaphat exhorts these judges to be purposeful, determined, and unwavering in their pursuit of justice. That's what uh, the end of verse 11, when he says, act resolutely. Resolutely means purposeful, determined, and unwavering in doing whatever it is you're being uh, resolute about. In this case, uh, uh, dispensing justice. The, point, the reason they would need to be resolute men, resolute judges, is because enforcing God's law would not be an easy task among a people prone to injustice and sin, as the Israelites were. And oh, by the way, as the church today is. So these men needed to decide ahead of time, because the going was going to get tough, They had to decide ahead of time. They had to purpose in their heart, I'm going to do what's right in the sight of God, come what may. You and I need to do that sometimes in situations that tempt us to compromise, 
to dishonor God by saying something or not saying something, doing something or not doing something, um, depending on which it is with respect to God's will. And then finally, Jehoshaphat says to these men, he assures them, he says, the Lord, and this depends on how you read this, but really in some ways, uh, I said there can be a may in there, the Lord will be, or the Lord will be with you, or may the Lord be with you. It can, in other words, be a wish, or it can be a statement of fact, uh, depending on how you translate the Hebrew there. So the Lord uh, will be with you in a blessed sense, as opposed to uh, in a in a uh, un, uh, uh, cursed sense. Uh, the Lord will be with you if and when you judge justly. When you render judge, uh, just verdicts, uh, the Lord will be with you and bless you, is by the implication there uh, at the end of verse 11. And the Lord be with the upright, or the Lord, may the Lord be with the upright, and the Lord will be with the upright. Meaning the upright judge amongst you. Okay, so, as we conclude, is there an overarching lesson that we can learn or that we can take away from King Jehoshaphat's efforts to foster the spiritual well-being of his subjects by reforming Judah's courts? I think there is. There's an overarching lesson here. But to understand it, to see it, uh, we need to understand a couple things. First of all, I think we need to understand that the nation of Israel, and not all Christians today believe what we believe about this, but we believe it. We need to understand that the nation of Israel, or Judah, uh, was, during the time of the Mosaic and Davidic Davidic administrations, uh, we need to understand what the nation, excuse me, let me start this over again, I'm falling over my words. We need to understand what the nation of Israel, or Judah, was in the Old Testament age, in the under the Davidic and the Mosaic covenants of or administrations of the covenant of grace, what Judah now was not really Israel or in some sense Israel, but they were covenant breakers. Uh, Judah was the church. Yes, it was a nation, but it was the church of its day, similar to the New Testament church, the church of our day, albeit with a political component to it read a king and an army and so on and so forth. Today, the church, uh, biblically faithful churches do not have political components to them. This is why I don't talk politics up here and won't. And why we don't give money to support candidates or whatever. It's none of the church's business. Issues are the church's business. Abortion <clears throat> and, 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 and uh, railing against abortion and, and homosexual uh, pseudo-marriage, those are issues that the church should speak loudly on, but not about individual candidates. So we need to understand the nation of Israel, uh, and Judah in this case, was the church of the day. We also need to understand something else to understand the final application I'm going to make, and that is the kings of the United Kingdom of Israel, so that would be uh, David and Solomon, and also the kings of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah after the breakup, that would be include Jehoshaphat. Those kings, uh, who they were, were, they were types of the Messiah. The Davidic line, David and his descendants, all of them were 
to be types of Christ. Some of them were better types than others, but they all in that office were types of Christ. And all the Davidic kings, including Jehoshaphat, um, that one of their principal responsibilities as as Christ-like figures in the Old Testament was to ensure that Yahweh was worshipped properly. That is to say, in a manner that he wished to be worshipped during that day and age. Recall Jesus, the Messiah that they were all types of, recall his intense anger uh, that he displayed and felt when his father's house was being used as a place of commerce. And how he re, the aggressive response that he uh, put forth uh, to the, the desecration that was occurring there. And the kings of old needed to also be similarly concerned for the Lord's house and the worship that took place therein. And the Lord's house was the nation slash church known as Judah in the Old Testament age. And remember, what Jehoshaphat is doing, as he's, uh, as the reason he is appointing these godly men to be judges uh, throughout the land is to help promote spiritual uh, renewal and revitalization in the country, which included, of course, its worship. So, keeping these truths in mind, that Israel was the church and that the uh, Jehoshaphat's uh, responsibility was to be help spearhead this spiritual um, improvement of worship of God's people, which was include their way of life as well as their uh, formal worship. Here's the here's the truth that we can lesson the lesson that we can learn in, in, in conclusion here. In the same way that the Davidic kings like Jehoshaphat were responsible for ensuring that the Old Testament worship the Old Testament church worshipped the Lord as he wished to be worshipped under that administration uh, of the covenant, the Davidic administration. The kings were responsible for that in the same way the leaders of today's church are responsible for ensuring that the New Testament church worships the Lord as he wishes to be worshipped under the new covenant administration of the same covenant of grace. Now, yes, Jehoshaphat was a king. He wasn't an elder. But again, components of the kingly office as well as components of the prophetic office, I'm foretelling, not foretelling here in the pulpit, but I'm exercising an element of the prophetic office of the Old Testament, still is present in the church. And uh, this duty that Jehoshaphat had to help... uh, uh, be an example, set an example, and do what he could to promote uh, spiritual health in the church of his day, that still applies today, particularly with respect to worship, our worship of him, both uh, broad and narrow, more formal worship. This is why this church, our denomination, and the elders in this congregation are committed to the what we believe scripture call uh, what, what is what we call the regulative principle of worship which we believe is taught in scripture that is god is to be worshiped uh, only as he uh, specifically wants to be worshiped we don't get to be creative about the way we worship him and uh, there are a number of different texts that make this point but the one that probably makes it most eloquently is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'll finish with this, 
this is uh, Moses, the, the Lord through Moses giving instructions to the people about when they go into the land of Canaan. He says, uh, after he says, um, let's see here. Do not, he says, starting in verse 30, uh, do not inquire after their gods, meaning the, the gods of the land that you're conquering, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that, we, that I also may do likewise? Notice that. And then the answer, you shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And then he says this. This is the part that's the regulated principle, essentially. Whatever I command you, this is the Lord speaking, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And notice the context there is worship. The context is worship. He's talking about how people worship him. And he says, whatever, you, you do what I command you to do with respect to my worship, not what, get your ideas from the nations and how they worship their gods. You, you worship me the way I command you. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. That's the regulative principle. Um, and that's a, a little bit of an embellishment on what's going on here in the text, but I think it's still uh, pertinent enough uh, to include that point. Jehoshaphat, uh, is uh, is zealous for the church of his day and is doing his part as the uh, a very prominent figure of the day to promote the right worship of God, that is wholehearted worship of God amongst all of God's people, which is why he did what he did uh, traveling about and appointing judges. May we be zealous for God's worship as well. It's purity uh, and the care with which we engage in it. Uh, God has to give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text.